what I want to start with is, as you can imagine from the title of my uh, of my talk, is actually about Yeats and his admiration, which his admiration of youth is perhaps most evident in his celebrated poem, which the quote from here is from, in memory of Eva Gore Booth and Con Markovich. In the first verse, Yeats recalls his early years, recounting autumn days spent at the Gore Booth estate in Lizardell in County Sligo. An idyllic image is completed by the presence of the two sisters, whom he describes as both beautiful, one a gazelle. But in stark contrast from the splendour of youth, Yeats continues by describing how, as women, their beauty is ravaged due to their involvement with political affairs. He says, the older is condemned to death, pardoned, drags out lonely years, conspiring among the ignorant. I know not what the younger dreams, some vague utopia, and she seems when withered old and skeleton gaunt, an image of such politics. Now, in fact, the Gorboot sisters became extraordinary political activists. Constance, her name change, derived from the fact that she married a count of Polish descent and acquired that title, Countess Markovich. But she dramatically rejected her aristocratic heritage and ended her days in inner city Dublin, where she had become involved with labour and social reform movements. But she ultimately devoted herself to the cause of Irish independence and Irish nationalism, which is perhaps why she becomes most remembered in Irish history. And as we know, she took up arms during the Easter Rising right around the corner from here. She was second in command of a group of combatants in Stephen's Green and later in the College of Surgeons. And we can see her here after her arrest, after the surrender in Easter 1916. And she was sentenced to death for her part in the Rising. Her sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment after appeals by her sister and others, but it was mainly due to an account of her sex that she wasn't actually executed. Two years after the Rising, Markovich became the first woman ever elected to the British House of Commons. She declined her seat on Republican grounds, but like many of the Sinn Féin candidates elected in that 1918 general election, Markovic was actually in prison for her involvement in what the British authorities termed a German plot. And she did receive, however, a letter from Prime Minister Lloyd George. And I've put the transcript, this is actually held in the, in the museum, uh, the, the, the National Museum here. And it's addressed, as you can see quite tellingly, sir, because they hadn't thought that actually a woman was going to get elected. On Tuesday, February the 11th, His Majesty will open Parliament in person, an address will be moved and accorded to answer to the gracious speech from the throne. I hope you may find it convenient to be in your place. And Constance describes in her letters to Eva how she replied and thoroughly enjoyed replying to the Prime Minister about how she wouldn't be in her place. Well, how did she get this and where did she get this from? And I like to think this is very typical Dublin humour because it was sent, and there's the envelope, to St. Patrick's, Dublin, but somebody scratched that out and redirected it to Holloway Jail in London. So she was actually in her cell in Holloway when she received it. So, you know, perhaps you can imagine how she did enjoy it. But Markovich did become the first female TD in Doyle Aaron and the first cabinet minister. And she proved to be a very effective Minister for Labour. 
But Yates demotes her inspiring political career to a miserable depiction of her condemned to death. She drags out lonely years conspiring among the ignorant. So what of the other sister? The younger sister was Eva Gore Booth. And actually, many times incorrectly, people maintained that the gazelle was Constance Markovitch. It wasn't, and we can see it in Yeats's memoirs. Eva was actually the gazelle whom Yeats referred to. And at one stage, he considered proposing marriage to her. Now, that doesn't make Eva unique in Ireland, as you can imagine. Um, there were a number of other women in that line. But Eva moved to England in early adulthood, and she devoted herself to campaigning on behalf of the working classes. And I think oftentimes Eva has got overlooked because she moved to England. But in fact, the working classes that she was helping work with were mainly Irish immigrants. Um, um, absolutely droves of women had gone, especially to Manchester, because of the, the industrialization and the textile factories that were there. Um, and she devoted herself to this. Her political campaigns were often highly successful at a time actually when women had no real political influence at all, even the basic right of a vote at general elections. But one such example of how successful Eva was is in 1908 when she orchestrated the defeat of a young Manchester MP. And that young MP was no less an adversary than the future British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. And we can see she invited Constance over to Manchester and they drove this carriage through the streets of Manchester with, driven by four white horses and it was absolutely spectacular and you can imagine it made it in and there's quite a number of papers that the photograph makes it into. But they managed to knock Churchill out of politics for a brief period of time. Again, something that doesn't show up in any biographies um, of Winston Churchill. But if this forced him out of politics for a very brief uh, time, but he also lost his Manchester constituency and he ended up moving his constituency to Dundee, which didn't suit him very well because it was so far away. But through her many driven activities, Eva helped gain votes for women in Britain and in Ireland. And she played a key role in successfully resisting the conscription of Irish men into the British army during World War I. Again, something which is often overlooked because that introduction was extended to Irish men in 1918 and it was near the end of World War I. We forget actually men could have been conscripted, but Eva launched a very, and helped with a very dramatic campaign and resisted that. But Gore Booth was also a highly successful poet and a playwright during her lifetime. And she published no less than 19 volumes of poetry, plays and philosophical prose. And she was greatly admired and by people like A.E. and Yeats and Catherine Tyne and quite a number of people at the time. But Yeats belittles her work to dreaming of some vague utopia until she becomes withered old and skeleton gaunt. Now, I should also point out, neither women made it to old age, even though this is what Yeats describes them as. They both actually died in their 50s. So again, we have this wrong impression of them in many ways. But Yeats, although Yeats' poem may be read as a condescending portrayal of female activism, his imagery does pose an interesting question for us. Why did two privileged women reject their aristocratic heritage so dramatically? And it was very dramatically. And certainly the images of the two women when they lived at Lizardell 
and I have an image of them here, um, provides us with this idea as well, because not only does it reflect the beauty which Yeats idealized, but also the affluence which provided them at this stage with such rich clothing and even such pristine grooming. The picture was taken around the time that they were presented at the court of Queen Victoria. Again, testimony to the fact of the high influence of their family. However, this picture also shows us something else, because if you were to look closely, there's an armband that's worn by both of them. This is actually a marketing photograph for Drumcliff Cooperative Creamery. <laughs> now, I do like to point out that judging by the size of their waist, they clearly weren't eating anything from the creamery because it's a little bit shocking, the size of them. But so we can see that already we get an insight, a clue into their already radical ideals, you know. And the Drumcliff Cooperative Creamery was something that was established by their brother Jocelyn Gorbooth. So now we get an indication into what's happening with the family. So therefore, while we do know much about the political activities, certainly of Constance Markovich, and a little bit more about Eva Gorbooth, what I want to do is examine the background of the sisters a bit more today to understand why and how they were driven from their, to reject their heritage and social status. In order to pursue lives of social reform among the poor and dispossessed in Ireland and England. And I'm very happy to talk more about their political attributes and what they did in the question time. But what I want to do today is examine more the sisters' family background and their experiences as daughters of such a wealthy and high-ranking landlord because then it will become evident that actually their upbringing resulted in them helping to dismantle the very system into which they were born, which I do find most intriguing. Their bond as sisters is a significant factor in this assessment because Constance and Eva were particularly close during their childhood at Lizardell. And the bond was best immortalized, I think, by Sarah Purser, who painted the two girls when supposedly Eva was 12 and Constance was 14. And many of you may have seen this after the sale of Lizardell House a number of years ago. Actually, the owners of the Marion Hotel bought it so that it would be on public display, which was a, a wonderful addition, I think, to, the, to, to have. And in the portrait, Eva is seated on the ground of a woodland admiring flowers, and Constance stands behind her, defiantly staring out at the picture. And to me, actually, this painting epitomizes the somewhat extraordinary relationship of the sisters. Um, because in adulthood, Constance chain-smoked cigarettes, took up arms against British forces, and was a flamboyant, dramatic character, both on and off stage. In contrast, Eva was severely asthmatic, a steadfast pacifist, and favoured a contemplative life. Eva became a radical political activist, but was much more comfortable in the background rather than appearing centre stage. And if you think about this, in many ways, I wonder how they were even in the same room at the same time. You know, but they were, their bond between the two of them was so intense, they actually believed they had a telepathic connection and very firmly believed this. And could, they decided and wrote about how they communed with each other at a particular time every day when Constance was imprisoned. It was also believed by Constance's death that their bond was so close that once Eva had died, the sister would not outlive her by long, and she didn't. 
In fact, the sister di sisters died just one year apart from each other. So the turbulent history of Ireland is actually embodied in the story of the Gore Boots. The origin of the family, and I just want to briefly go back, probably fly back a couple of centuries, but it's very brief, to give us an idea of the origin and what even Constance were dealing with in their heritage. Because the origin can be traced to Paul Gore, who was a prosperous English soldier during the reign of Elizabeth I. And Gore was the first member of the family to come to Ireland, and he arrived in 1599. Four years later, he was chosen to escort the defeated Irish chieftains Dunnock O'Connor and Rory O'Donnell to surrender to English forces. But after successfully delivering the chieftains to Athlone, Gore was granted lands in the northwest of Ireland by James I, who had recently ascended the throne. Avidly loyal to the crown in Ireland, in 1608 he followed James's orders to occupy Tory Island, then still controlled by Irish forces. And Gore organised to occupy the Tory Island through a sinister scheme. He orchestrated a dispute between the two main Irish forces on the island. And when the battle was over, Gore slaughtered the victors. In recognition of this loyal service, he was created a baronet in 1622, and he resided in Ireland and built a castle in Sligo. The Gore boots are directly descended from Paul Gore. And it is apt to say that Eva and Constance learned to despise this heritage. As children, they actually appear embarrassed by their family's wealth and privileged status. And when we've got this history, we can understand why. While in adulthood, they resented the oppressive rank occupied by Anglo-Irish landlords. And similar to most families in their position, the Gore Boots were an integral part of the British ruling class in Ireland. And their land and titles were granted, as many others, by the British Crown as a reward for conquering and oppressing Irish natives. The family's reputation did not improve greatly just even before the sisters were born. And if we look to around the time of the famine, their actions were actually looked on suspiciously. And the scars caused by the famine are, as we know, still felt in many rural areas in Ireland. But Sligo, I think, is, is perhaps an example and a perfect example of a county that never recovered to its free famine population. It's estimated that over 50,000 people died or emigrated from Sligo in the, the county during the famine. And there are numerous, as we can see now, there are numerous memorials and mass plots and graves to the famine vic victims of the famine in Sligo. And this is just one of the memorials at uh, Sligo, um, Sligo Harbour. Tales of mistreatment by Anglo-Irish landlords prevail, and we do have horror stories that which still abound to this day in Sligo regarding the Gore Boots activities. One account maintains that Sir, Sir Robert, who was grandfather to Eve and Constance, forcibly evicted starving tenants from his land and boarded them onto a rotten ship, the Pomano, bound for Canada. The tale concludes that the Pomana sank in clear sight of Lizardell House and all passengers on board were drowned. Now, there is nothing, and I have looked into this, there is no facts to actually substantiate this, so we can't prove or disprove this tale. But actually, this is not the issue, for when Eva and Constance were children, there was still a popular ballad featuring this very tale that was popular in the Sligo area. So this is part of what they had to grow up with.
Since the acquisition of the Lizardell Papers by the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland, historian Gerard Moran uncovered many of Sir Robert's assisted emigration schemes and uncovered them as generous attempts to alleviate suffering and hunger. But we still have, even as late as 2009, a Sligo historian, Joe McGowan, termed the Lizardell assisted emigration scheme as famine clearance, in which people were forced out of their homes and onto coffin ships. And McGowan takes his lead from earlier historians, who describe Sir Roberts as a shoveler out of tenants in order to avoid ruin by shipping them off. So we can see the type of background that, that Eva and Constance are being brought into. And the records actually of St. John Am's house in New Brunswick in Canada do highlight an appalling situation coming from the Lizardell estate. On one particular ship that arrives there, we have 172 passengers that within the 12 months after the arrival that were sent specifically by Sir Robert end up in hospital over the course of 12 months and most of them died. And this is after arrival. So it's certainly a tainted history. But I want to get back into then what happens with their childhood. Constance was born in 1868 at her grandfather's London residence, Buckingham Gate. And it is poignant for us to realise that she began her life in a house situated in the shadow of the British Royal Palace. But if you think back to her mugshot that I showed you a minute ago, those astute amongst you will have noticed that she's actually claimed her place of birth as Lizardell. Now, to me, again, this points to the fact that she was embarrassed. Now, another thing which I probably, is probably something that I do myself, actually, she's lied about her age. She said she was born in 1873, so I particularly like that because it just shows that, actually, you know, I'm not so bad after all. But I do think lying about the fact that she certainly did not want to be fighting in the Easter Rising and then saying to the authorities, oh, I was born in London. So we've got this idea of her being as Irish as you possibly can. Why was she born in London? Because at the time, her grandfather was a member of parliament for Sligo. And every time at the House of Commons would sit, his entire family and a large household staff would move to London while the house was in sessions. But Sir Robert himself, while he was an elected official, it doesn't necessarily reflect his popularity among the local Sligo population because he was first elected in 1850, topping the polls with a large vote from his Catholic tenants. However, it's very possible that many of the tenants, certainly in the area, felt compelled to vote for him because the Secret Ballot Act hadn't been introduced by then. And actually, he was already accused of evicting tenants because they would not vote for his nominee in the 19, in the 1838 general election. So we know that he had previous about this. He did continue to represent his county uh, as a member of parliament until his death in 1876, but his record of contribution to parliamentary debate is relatively undistinguished. And he rarely attended the House of Commons when he did, he clearly favoured the interest of landowners, supported Protestant rights against the rights of the majority Catholic population in the county at the time. The Gorboot's main family residence was Lizardell House, and it's here that Eva was born in 1870, two years after her sister. Now, this is an image of it around that time. 
And Lizardale House, and I'm sure many of you are very familiar with it, it's actually a 72-roomed Greek revival mansion that's situated on, by the time the sisters were born, 32,000 acres of land. And I'll just give you um, uh, quite a dramatic, I think, actually, a shot of what it looks like now, because as we know, Lizardale House still stands, and uh, the new owners have done a wonderful job, actually, in, in restoring it, and it's open to the public again. Um, but we can see where they where they came from and this privilege, the, the idea as well of it's one of the most scenic areas, I think, in the west of Ireland. And this like private access down to a beach, it's just, you know, it really is a stunning. And also at this stage, when Eva and Constance were born, we would have had hundreds of tenant families in the area, which were dependent on small patches of land. Now, they would have been far removed from the house. The Gore Booth family were considered an established Anglo-Irish family, and as such, they played a vital role in the system of British dominion or domination over Ireland. And as part of this, their father, when they were children, Henry Gore Booth, was assigned the role of High Sheriff of Sligo, Justice of the Peace, and the Deputy Lieutenant of the County. And by the time Eva was born, this affluent position enjoyed by Anglo-Irish landowning families was actually facing real challenges. In the aftermath of the Great Famine, the family was slowly losing respect of the local community. And we certainly can see a general feeling of contempt for this powerful position occupied by landowners. When Eva and Constance's grandfather died in 1876, their father took over management of the Lizardelle estate. And this perhaps put the girls in a much better position because actually Sir Henry was more interested in his Arctic adventures than in managing a large estate. And again, we can reference Yeats on this because he reflects on a visit to Lizardelle where he comments that Sir Henry thinks of nothing but the North Pole, where his first officer, to his great satisfaction, has recently lost himself and thereby made an expedition to rescue him desirable. And this, I think, actually causes Sir Henry to show a bit more compassion for his tenants because he wants the easy life in many respects. But certainly within five years of him taking over management of the estate, he had reduced his tenants' rent to below the level of Griffith's valuation. And this, of course, was a national guide to the appropriate rents which tenant farmers should pay. The Irish Land League, founded in 1879 by Michael Davitt, campaigned for these rents to be charged at the rate of the valuation. But Sir Henry reduced his tenant's rents accordingly before he was legally obliged to do so. And I certainly think that this gives somewhat of an influence as well to, to his children. But whatever the reason for rejecting the rents, um, it certainly has that, that impact on the moral development of the children. On top of this, we can also see the actions of their mother, Lady Georgina, who was inspired, inspired the girls in their own campaigns towards social reform. Because Lord, Lady Georgina herself is a very interesting person and there's very little um, actually known about her or written about her at this stage. But she opened a school in one of the offices on the estate and she taught women to crochet, white embroider and darn thread work. Originally, the women produced ladies and children's handmade underclothing, children's frocks, robes and pinafores. 
By 1895, the work of the Lizardell School of Needlework was officially recognised and received a grant from the Congested Districts Board. And in that year, a total of 35 women were enrolled in the school. The produce was sold at reasonable prices, providing the women with an independent income, which was at a crucial time of great poverty and deprivation in the Sligo area. The skills learnt by the women helped them to secure good posts in America and Canada should they need to emigrate also. But the work of the Lizardell School was highly commended in the Pall Mall Gazette. The paper recognised Georgina's endeavour as a cottage industry, which would contribute, they maintained, to the regeneration of Ireland. So this endeavour, I think, really provides even Constance with a positive example of economic reform through training. The fact that their mother worked specifically to achieve financial independence for women would resonate in the sisters' later labour campaigns. So famine revisits at Sligo, revisits Ireland during the winter of 1879 and 1880, and Sligo suffered particularly badly. And at that stage, Sir Henry helped reconstitute the Kearney and Drumcliff Relief Committee. And conscious of the deprivation caused by the Great Famine, the Gore Booth family at once opened their food store and supplied meal to any tenant in need. So this was quite different to how the grandfather had, or how Sir Henry's father had reacted. The food was provided free and the entire family became involved with the distribution, including the children. And through this act of kindness, the local community became involved, or the, the local community warmed to the family. Years later, we have a former secretary of the Relief Committee in Sligo who wrote to an Irish newspaper recounting the importance of Sir Henry's food donations during this time of hardship. He describes how Sir Henry gave food to the starving poor, free to all, at his own cost. And this sense of responsibility had a deep impact on the Gorebooth children who were old enough to witness the famine. Eva, her sister Constance and their, their brother Jocelyn all later exhibited an, an awareness of responsibility to others less fortunate than themselves. After the famine subsided, the three siblings became actively involved with the annual Harvest Home Festival, a celebration all, for all the tenants and employees on the Lizardell estate. And again, we have reports in the Sligo Independent, which illustrates the event. About 300 tenants and workers would sit down to a traditional dinner of beef, mutton and plum pudding with Sir Henry and Lady Gorebooth and other members of the family and their friends acting as helpers, paying every attention to their guests. So at this time, we also have the sisters pursuing outdoor pursuits such as riding and hunting. And the two girls developed close friendships with tenant farmers and their families on the Lizardell estate. And we have accounts from the tenants as well as the girls that they enjoyed roaming the local countryside on horseback. And they became particularly taken by their surrounding nature. They listened to local stories and became taken by the beautiful landscape and rich cultural heritage reflecting Celtic imagery. Eva and Constance thrived on folklore recounting the High Queen of Connacht, Maeve, who was reputedly born on the cairn of Knocknaree, not far from Lizardell House. Maeve would become an important character for both sisters. 
Eva later wrote plays and poetry in which Maeve features as the main character. Constance named her only daughter Maeve and used the warrior queen as an example in her own armed campaigns. But we may never fully understand why Eva and Constance Gore Booth rejected their family and their heritage so dramatically or explain what led them to follow individual paths of radical social reform. Constance left Ireland in 1893 to study art first in London and later in Paris, where she would meet and marry Count Markovitch. During this time, Eva became ill and was sent to recuperate in Italy, which of course was something that was a standard practice over to warm climates. While there, she met her life partner, Esther Roper, a young suffragist from Cheshire. And when Eva returned to Lisdell in 1896, she was enthused by ideas of suffrage politics and inspired by Esther's work on behalf of the factory women of Manchester. When Constance returned home for Christmas celebrations, Eva convinced her to bring the suffrage movement to Sligo. And I should stress as well, it's very clearly the suffrage movement because quite incorrectly, a lot of people were referring to them, certainly in the media, as suffragettes. Neither of them were ever into these militant actions in the same way. They were very clear suffragists and, and weren't into the same activities. Um, it was decided to establish the Sligo branch of the Irish Women's Suffrage and Local Government Association, the first suffrage organisation in this area. So we can certainly imagine how this hit Sligo. Eva was elected secretary, Constance president, and their younger sister, Mabel, as treasurer. The first official meeting was held at Milltown National School in Drumcliff. And Constance opened the meeting by recounting lighthearted anecdotes about extending the vote to women. And she explained, I've been told, amongst other things, that the vote will cause women to ape the other sex to adopt their clothes, copy their manners and peculiarities, that it will cause women to neglect their home and duties, and worst of all, prevent them from marrying. Of course, this may be true. Pigs may fly, as the old proverb says, but they are not likely birds. But Sligo had never witnessed such open debate about this almost foreign idea of votes for women. Women's suffrage was seen as just too radical and even foolhardy by many people at the time, including a local bachelor, Percy Clark, who attended the meeting. And he warned the sisters, enfranchisement of women would be home rule with a vengeance, a petticoat government. The meeting did gain much media attention, including a report in the acclaimed Vanity Fair. So it was quite prestigious to make the Vanity Fair. But many of these reports, as we can see from this one, are unfavorable. As you can see here, the meeting was reported in a condescending manner as generating amusement and concluding that the sisters make a pretty picture on the platform, but it is not women of their type who need to assert themselves over man. However, it amuses them and others. And I doubt if the tyrant has much to fear from their little arrows. I think actually the tyrant had quite a lot to fear from their little arrows, um, but that wasn't known at the time. Um, but it is clear that such reports, from such reports, that although the sisters established unique connections with the tenants on Lizardell Estate and the surrounding areas, actually they could never live among them. They were the daughters of a landlord. 
This seems to be a significant reason why they both left Sligo and rejected their heritage. In Manchester, Gore Booth chose to live among the working classes, many of whom were Irish immigrants, while Constance died in a public ward of a Dublin hospital after spending years living amongst the working classes in this city. Now, it was quite usual at this time for women of this particular class to do philanthropic work, to go out into the community, work even in workhouses, but they would go home at night. They would go back to Lisdell House. They would have the support of their families. Neither Constance or Eva did. They didn't live in that. They lived and died amongst the working classes. I think that's quite significant. It makes them different in many aspects. But when British rule over Ireland was finally overthrown, it was inevitable that Anglo-Irish families would lose much of their power and position. The Gore Boots were not unique in this instance. They, like many others of their class, would lose most of their land, wealth, and social position. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, they are not typical in that it was members of their own families who contributed to their final demise. Eva and Constance actually helped to dismantle the system of British rule over Ireland from within. Yet their work is demoted in Yeats' poem, which Elizabeth Butler Cullingford notes is characteristic of Yeats' poetic attitude to political females. But while women's participation still in Irish and still in British politics remains below the European average, the legacy of Markovich and Gore Booth is actually remains a central inspiration for change. It's for this reason that I was honoured to be in the House of Commons last year when the Oireachtas members and representatives from Vote All 100 presented a portrait, you can see in the back, of Markovic to the Speaker, John Burkow. And Markovic now takes her rightful position among the male politicians there. Although I think she may be, she may find that a little problematic that she's hanging somewhere in the House of Commons. But thank you. Let's leave it there.